Life. For everybody just joining us, it is August 1st. This morning is Princes of the Universe. We had a little technical difficulty, so we're kind of picking up in the middle of this message. But the topic this morning has to do with the fact that we are called to be princes of the universe, kings. The Bible tells us that those of us that seek after God, that search Him out, are kings. Uh, in Proverbs 25, you see that illustrated very well. It says it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter, to the glory of kings to search it out. Each of us that are seeking after God are declared to be kings. We looked at just briefly earlier the way that the world has ripped this thought off, the way that artists who are moved by the prince of the power of the air, who have eternity bound up in their hearts because the Bible says that they do, have counterfeited this and displayed it in other ways. You have uh, a group like Queen singing about being the princes of the universe and the lyrics to the song look like they could apply to a Christian's life and yet these people were totally ungodly. So how on earth could that happen? And the reason that it happens is God has put in us certain truths that we yearn for, that we cry for. And the devil is so shrewd, he has taught men to sell records, to sell movies based upon those yearnings of man. It's in every man, the eternity in their hearts. We looked at Genesis 32 where we saw a man who struggled alongside God, who struggled with other men and overcame, declared to be a prince with God. And this set the pattern for a whole nation. And you and I as Gentiles have been grafted in to that nation. We are now with those people that are struggling with men, struggling alongside God and overcoming. We are those men who are searching out the deep things of God so the Bible declares us to be kings. And we've turned to 1 Corinthians 4 and picking up in verse 8. And this is pretty well where our technical difficulties ended. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and without us. This is Paul speaking to a Corinthian church, and he's speaking sarcastic, sarcastically. These people were not kings yet. He said, you have all you want. You have everything you need. You've become kings and without us. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles. I'm sorry. You have become kings and without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. The reality is the Corinthian church had begun to act like they had already received everything that they were supposed to have from God. The Bible speaks of a day. It speaks of it in Daniel. It speaks of it in Revelation. It speaks of it in a lot of places where those of us who have borne the likeness of Adam and been renewed, which was last week's message, into the likeness of God will rule and reign with God. People who reign, principalities, are called Kings. Daniel even says that the sovereignty of the kingdoms of the world will be given to the saints. A sovereign or a monarch is a king. We are declared to be kings. They were acting as if they had already become kings. Paul said, oh, man, you already have all you want. You're kings. How I wish you were that I might be a king with you. This is because it's the destiny of every Christian to become a king. The Bible calls us, things, us who are not something as though we were looks at us, even though we're not right now kings, and calls us kings. There's a reason for that. That's because it's what we're destined for. And God always honors and speaks of faith. In Corinthians, you see that working. But Paul says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. Although we're called to be princes in the universe, although we're called to be kings, those that have become leaders in Christianity have been put as a spectacle for all of the universe to see. Those that were declared to be kings by God are the ones that are being abused by all of the dark forces of the world. And it didn't make it on the CD, but you remember when I read you the lyrics of the song? It said, here we are, born to be kings. We're the princes of the universe. Here we belong, fighting to survive in a world with the darkest of powers. You know, he's singing about something he doesn't even understand and doesn't really apply to him. But you and I were born to be kings, and the darkest of powers come against us. 
And God has allowed that those who are kings among kings, the leadership of the body of Christ on earth, be made a spectacle of. Why would that be? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. He bears with great patience the objects of His wrath so that mercy might come to us so that judgment might increase upon those who uh, are ungodly. But in the Bible we see in Ephesians His real intent. Turn to Ephesians 3. You'll make a right from where you are. Go over a couple books. In Ephesians 3 in my Bible is on page 1300. Verse 10 says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. What we find out in this verse is that there are already kings here. There are principalities and there are rulers. These are the dark forces that Freddie Mercury wrote about in a song. He didn't know that. He's on the wrong side. But there are already kings here that are fighting to keep you from realizing the destiny which God has called you to, which is to be a king. You remember Jesus stood before Pilate? Was Pilate a king of sorts? Now I realize that Rome was not... um, A monarchy. But in some sense, was Pilate a king? Absolutely. He was a man with authority over other men. That authority was one that was recognized even with the power of death. Was Jesus a king? Yeah. And do you remember the discussion they had? Pilate says, is it true that you're a king? God, I bet he was terrified. And Jesus said, yeah, it's true. It is as you say. But my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, my people would fight you see that there's a real difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom that we've inherited. The kingdom of this world fights outwardly. With everything that they do, they're struggling to maintain their authority. They're fighting to show you who they are. Everything from their crowns to their uh, outward facade, everything about them is to emphasize who they are. We are just the opposite. We walk around in humility, in love, in mercy, knowing inwardly deriving our self-worth from what God has called us, that He has called us kings, and that that is our destiny, although we are at the end of the procession being displayed before all the rulers and authorities of this world. Y'all see that picture? Well, in the Old Testament, what we know is Corinthians 10 tells us the warnings that were written down, the things that happened to the nation of Israel, because it was the priestly nation, were for the purpose of warning us. Those of us that have become the Israel of God. Gentiles who have shared in the Israeli blessing and become that one new entity. We're the Israel of God. We can look at the track record of the natural nation of Israel and learn from it. So what we're going to do when we're studying this topic of princes of the universe, of kings of the universe, is we're going to see what we can learn from Israel's record. What we might want to know. What we might need to know. We know God's intent is to use us to show His many-sided wisdom. And that that wisdom involves allowing us to be abused at times. Turn to Joshua 24. Joshua is the same word as Jesus. Joshua is a type of Jesus. He was the one who followed Moses, who was like Moses, but was built for warfare. A prophet, yes, but somebody who appeared to destroy the enemies of God. Joshua 24 is the last chapter of Joshua, and there's a reason that we've started there. At the end of Joshua's ministry, what was Joshua's ministry, by the way? I told you it's to destroy the enemies of God, but in reality, what did Joshua spend his time on earth doing? Advancing God's kingdom on earth. He, he was conquest of the uh, promised land. Everything that you read about in the book of Joshua is about taking the land. Now we're at the end of Joshua's life. And in Joshua 24, verse 14, says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, 
Then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your forefathers, the ones they served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Did he beg Israel to serve God? No. He simply set an example where he said, I will serve God, and you need to choose to see who you're going to serve. Does this remind you of anybody? Jesus' purpose on earth was to advance the kingdom of God. He was to be the first in the body of Christ, the anointed one, the head. He didn't beg anybody to follow him. He simply said, make your choice. He turned to one man and said, you need to go sell everything you have. Didn't explain why. Just told him that and turned around and walked off. Although one gospel says he looked at him and loved him when he said it. He tells another, hey, let the dead bury the dead. He never begged anybody to follow him or to serve God. He simply stated the truth, and they did. Now let's see what Joshua goes on to do. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Listen how Joshua responds. You know, we give altar calls. We set up the music. We work people into an emotional state to try to get them to make an, a, commi a commitment to the Lord. These people are right here saying, we've seen God. He's a good God. We'll serve Him. We'll serve Him. And how does Joshua answer? Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. The ministry model from Joshua is not to beg people to get saved. It's to make them count the cost. Where have you heard those words, count the cost? Jesus said if one ruler goes to battle against another ruler. What are we talking about when we're talking about rulers? Kings. If one king is going to go to battle against another king, will he not first look to see if he has enough troops to succeed? Because if he doesn't succeed, or if somebody builds a tower, won't he first count his resources to see if he can complete it? Because if he doesn't, everybody will laugh. There are two kingdoms that are at war. There are those that are already considered to be kings by the world system. Ephesians 6 calls them rulers and principalities in this dark realm. And you and I who are destined to become kings. You see this with Jesus uh, as he's being tempted. The Gospel of Luke records it. Satan says, hey, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. They've been given to me. I can give them to anybody that I want. And indeed he has. There is a hierarchy in Satan's kingdom. It's destined to fall. We believe that. But apparently he doesn't. Jesus is standing before him, somebody who is a king in his own right, but not recognized by the world system, who's laid it aside in order to do this God's way so that he can inherit it in the way that God told him to, and Satan didn't recognize it. You see the struggle between, between two kingdoms, those who are declared to be kings now and those who are declared to become kings. You saw it before Jesus and Pilate. You see it before Jesus and Satan. You see it in Jesus' parables about one kingdom going to fight another. Joshua's here. He said, hey, you want to serve God? You want to be a king? No, you, you guys probably can't do it. You, God's a holy God. You guys are rebellious. If you serve other gods, he's not going to forgive that. He's laying the groundwork. He's making them count the cost just like Jesus did. And they answered, no, 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 we will. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Friends, each one of us made a choice on some day. Most of us refer to that day as the day that we were born again. Those words will be replayed before the Father, before all of the angels in heaven, as we stand before Jesus. The choice that you made will witness. It will witness either to your salvation or to your loss thereof, that you made a choice. You were given the opportunity and you made a choice to become a king with God. Now our lives must reflect that choice. So he says, you're witnesses then. Now then, said Joshua, throw away 
the foreign gods that are among you, and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. We are in the process of rooting out all of the foreign gods that are among us. He said, I don't have any foreign gods. Matthew and I spoke this morning and said, I, I, can you believe? Israel, they, they burn their kids in the fire to Molech. So, well, how on earth? People that are called to be princes with God, that are called to be kings with God, had foreign gods? They killed their children in the fire to Molech? How does that happen? It happens the same way that soccer moms yield their children to a God of glory and fame. They say they push their children to become athletic stars. It's not the child's desire. More than that, it's not God's desire for the child. But the parents want recognition and notoriety from it, so they push their children every day to become that. That's no different than burning your son in the fire to Molech, and yet we see it every day. We say, oh, those parents are living vicariously through their children. No, that's the nice way to put it. The truth is they are sacrificing their children on the fire to fame and glory. And it happens all the time. How many childhood stars? Do, they ever, do their lives ever turn out well? You know, they always go through drug abuse. They always go through suicide attempts. They always, but parents will take children Judah's age and take them to every talent show on earth hoping. Why? Because a kid comes out of the womb and wants to be an actor? I don't think so. It's the parents' desire. And they're sacrificing their children in the fire to Molech and they don't even realize it. Well, that's an obvious example. It's kind of like the high places that we studied that time. Creeping up on the mountain, looking at the way the world does it, and inwardly, you want to do it that way too. When we speak about our past life, when we say, well, when I was in the world, this, or we speak about knowledge that we had from the world, any of those things, these are foreign gods that are among us. You were born again. The old life has passed away. All things are supposed to become new. If the old guy died, and we know it's rude to talk about somebody who's dead, and all things are becoming new, quit referencing your lost life. Quit making judgments based on what you would have done. Quit even thinking about it. You're new in Christ. You know, it, it really doesn't matter. So that's what Joshua tells him. And then listen to what he does on verse 25. He says, On that day Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. What did Joshua do? He told people, serve the Lord God just like I am. But if it doesn't seem desirable, don't serve Him. He waited for their response. They said, we want to serve Him. He said, then get rid of your foreign gods. And he made a covenant with them and set up a memorial stone. Now, friends, it's true that the Lord gives me these messages, that I don't plan them out months and ahead. But you know what? You can see in the Lord's pattern why have we been learning about memorial stones. Why do we learn about them? Because God's revelation builds upon revelation. He made a covenant, and then He gave them something in their life to remind them of the making of the covenant. A memorial stone. Each of you have entered into a covenant with God and there are things in your life that remind you of that. The time He spoke to you and told you to move to Houston. The time He spoke to you and told you to buy a house. The time He spoke to you and said you will be married or you'll have a child and you had a child. Those things. The next thing that happens is Joshua dies. And the only ones that are left are the elders that had lived with Joshua. What is this like? This is like Jesus who came instituted a covenant with us. And then He left His physical presence with removed from us. The only thing that is left with us now are the stories of what He did and His Spirit that is here to remind us of that and to empower us. We have a covenant and we have a memorial stone. The memorial stone's what's written on our hearts. He's proven Himself to you. I said, well, golly, Eric, I thought we were talking about kings of the universe and what was that whole queen introduction for? And the... Uh, the proverb about to search out a matter is the glory of kings and the letter to the wife and all the things that I mentioned that half didn't make it on the CD. Well, this is it. Flip the page from Joshua and go to Judges. If the book of Joshua is about the conquest of Canaan, what is the book of Judges about? Ruling Canaan. Holding on to it. And you know simply by the title that they didn't do a great job. What would happen is they would fall into bondage. They would fall under the oppression of the enemy. And God would have to appoint a 
judge to come and bring them deliverance. And this pattern happened over and over and over, and it's because every man did what was right in his own eyes. Take in concordance, that's what you'll find in the book of Judges, and it is the problem. It's the problem. Once you have freedom, you've entered into the covenant, and you're free to serve God, we tend to do what's right in our own eyes. But that's not what we're studying this morning. Our topic is princes of the universe, kings with God. So Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? They were in the land of Canaan, but they had not yet completely destroyed all of the Canaanites. You guys are saved, and yet you have not completely destroyed all the enemies of God in your life. There are foreign gods among us. There are enemies of God within our lives that pull at us. Every time you've ever been in a social situation where you were tempted to hide your knowledge of Christ, where you were tempted to reference the old life, where you were tempted to live as if you were lost even for a moment, or like my Baptist friends used to say, lose your religion. Every time that happens, we show ourselves to be in the promised land, but among enemies. That is salvation. That's the walk that we're in now. The Lord answered, Judah is to go first. I have given the land into their hands. Judah is to go. Who do we send to fight the enemy? Out of 12 tribes, 12 brothers, we'll send the first, right? Reuben, he's the oldest. No. We'll send the last, Benjamin. He's the youngest, must be the most youthful. No. Well, we'll send Levi. That's the priestly tribe. We'll send Levi first. No. When you want to know how do I enter into a battle, I'm now saved. I'm in the promised land, but I'm surrounded by enemies. Who is to fight these enemies first? The first weapon in every Christian's arsenal is praise. You send Judah first. It means praise. I woke up yesterday morning, and I had a fantastic day. Right up until the evening. Things got weird around the evening. But fantastic day. I woke up with a song in my heart. I woke up singing a praise song. I've noticed that days that I do that, days that I meditate on the praises of God, turn out to be better days. So, well, why is that? Well, it's entirely scriptural. It's absolutely what we're supposed to do. You should begin your battle with the enemy with praise. But it wasn't praise alone. Since then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. You remember how excited I was? I was reading Zechariah one day, and we had a whole teaching about the two anointed olive branches beside the menorah. And how God said, it's not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he had anointed two for the task and all of those things. God anoints two for every major battle. You know why? Because no man's an island to himself. None of us were meant to walk this thing out alone. He sent them out two by two for a reason. And when you go into a battle, Judah, praise, is to go first. But praise has a brother. You know what praise brother is? Truthfully, he had 11 brothers. But one brother mentioned in this passage, which Corinthians 10 says is written down to help us, to teach us. His brother is Simeon. Well, why Simeon? You know, in a lot of ways, Simeon's not a good guy. You remember? He killed all the people at Shechem. Genesis 49 talks about Simeon as uh, cruel. I mean, why Simeon? Because Simeon's name and what Simeon's purpose in life was means to hear from God. Simeon means to hear from God. This is why the old man at the temple when Jesus was born, who had been promised he would see the Messiah before he died, name was Simeon because he heard from God. Simon Peter is Simeon Peter. It's just a shortened word. This is why Jews continued to name their children Simeon even when Simeon himself's life was not perfect because his purpose was to hear from God. You want to win in your battles? You need to send praise first. And praise has a brother, the ability to hear from God. Praise alone is not enough. You have to hear from God for direction. And you know what? When praise goes into battle, and he takes with him the ability to hear from God, the next time the ability to hear from God will send you into battle, and praise will go with it. That's how Judges lays this out. But why? 
Why? Because you were called to be a king, but there are kings that resist you. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, or some would say Adonai Bezek, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites. Adonai Bezek fled. But they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. What a strange thing to put in the Bible. You know, of all the things that you could write, why did we write that he had cut off his thumbs and big toes? Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. This is the time period of the judges. Jerusalem did not belong to Israel yet. It was in the promised land, but it had not yet been overrun by the Israelites. In fact, in David's day, some 400 years after this point, we see they're still fighting for the city of Jerusalem. This is just like us in salvation, fighting for the high places but not yet having conquered all of them. We are kings fighting with other kings. Well, here, these guys called to be kings, called to inherit the land. They ran into somebody. What a strange name. Adonai Bezek. Well, I already gave you a hint. Adonai is like Adonai. When the Jews speak of God, they don't call Him Yahweh. They don't call Him Elohim. There are many names for God, but the one most commonly in use is Adonai. Now, there is a God that is in this world. Not the God that we serve, but the God of the kings of this world. And He desires praise. He desires what we, the true kings of the universe, give our God. And so He has a counterfeit name. He's also declared to be a prince. He's not the prince with God. He's not the prince of God. He's the prince of the power of the air. We'll pronounce it differently so you can keep them separate. But Adonai, the sovereign over all the universe. Adonai, a lesser prince who is a king, but he desires the kingship that is not his. He wants to be the king of the universe and he can't be. What do you think Bezek means? I'll tell you, it's right by. Where did they take? They were in Bezek. They fought with Adonai Bezek. And they took him immediately somewhere else. They took him to Jerusalem. So Bezek had to be very close to Jerusalem. Adonai and Adonai, very close, right? Bezek, very close to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of double peace, and yet it's seen more warfare than any city on the planet. Jerusalem is declared to be the city of the great king. It's even spoken of as if it were God's throne. It's the site that Jesus ascended, the site that Jesus will return, the place where the day of the Lord happens, in the mountains around Jerusalem. Where do you think Bezek is? It's in the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. See, we are called to be kings. There are kings right now that we are in contention with, the rulers and powers of this dark realm. We have a king, Adonai. They have a king, Adonai. We have a city, Jerusalem. They have a city, Bezek. Bezek means lightning. The Lord, Adonai, Adonai, the Lord of lightning. The prince of the power of the air. The most frightening thing you see in the air is lightning. Jesus said when he prayed for his disciples, and how many disciples did he send out when he was praying? Seventy. Seventy or seventy-two. You know, it's one of those translation things. He's praying for them. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Adonai, Bezek, fall as I prayed for you. They said, hey man, even the demons were subject to us in your name. There is a counterfeit prince in this world and Adonai, Bezek, represents him. He's got a name like God's. He calls himself the Lord. He lives in a city like Jerusalem and yet it's not. It's the city of lightning. His power is from the air, not from the Spirit of God. Adonai Bezek represents Satan and everything that the kingdom of this world has. Well, what is Adonai Bezek famous for? What is the only thing that you know about him? That he liked to cut off kings' big toes and their thumbs and have them eat scraps under his table. 
That's because Adonai Bezek liked to take people like you, called to be kings, and cut off their thumbs and toes and have you eat under his table. It's not enough to kill you. The devil would like to kill you, Cassidy. He would like to kill you, Mandy. But if he could do anything he wanted, he would like to cut off your thumbs and toes and keep you under his table. Why? wonder what that means. You'll turn to Leviticus 8. While you're turning, I'll tell you a little bit. What is the saddest thing you'll ever see? Is it that a Christian like Keith Green died in a plane crash? Is that sad? Well, we don't like it, but what is great about it? To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. What is the saddest thing you've ever seen in your life? It's to see somebody on fire for God, fall from grace with God, stop his walk with God, and be a puppet on the devil's string. When I think of that immediately, I think of a rock star named Dylan who was on fire for God. I don't know what it is with me and rock stars today. We've gone from Queen to Dylan. But he's on fire for God. He's writing songs about God. He's entered a school, Christ for the Nations. He's singing with Keith Green on his CDs. And today, he's a king that has had his thumbs and toes cut off. And he's kept like a dog under Satan's table. He's submitted to Adonai Bezek. If the devil can't kill you, which is not always his first goal, what he wants is to remove your authority from you. To remove that what makes you unique so that he can keep you like a dog under his table as a warning. Why did this guy do this in the natural? Why did Adonai Bezek cut off the thumbs of people and the big toes of people and put them under their table? What did that tell everybody around? If you mess with me, you'll end up like a dog under my table, humiliated, defeated, and eating scraps. What does it tell the world when they see Christians who are no longer acting like Christians, who have submitted to the enemy, who have made a peace treaty, they've given up their thumbs and toes in order to be fed from the enemy's table? It tells them we can win. We can keep these people from being kings. What does it tell the kings of the universe, you and I? If you're not careful, what it will tell you is we can't win. When you see Christians who are mighty in strength, people who are orators, people who are great men with television programs around the world, fall. Now thank God the one that just came to mind has not fallen. He slipped and got back up. But when you see them quit serving Christ, it's discouraging. And that's what the devil wants to do to you. Why the thumbs and big toes? Leviticus? I have to get there. I told you I thought this one would be good. No mistake, the CD doesn't work, huh? Leviticus 8. Adonai Bezek. He liked to cut off thumbs and big toes. Yeah, I'm looking for it. I'm sorry. Okay, Uh, starting in verse 22. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination. What's ordination? It's when everybody recognizes that you have been ordained by God to be a king. The ram for ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and of the big toe of his right foot. Leviticus 14 teaches about this as well. And you can read it in some other time when we have more time. The blood of the ram for your ordination and also for your guilt offering was placed upon the right lobe, upon the right thumb, and upon the right big toe. Because these are the things that a normal, not normal, the majority of people are right-handed. The symbol of strength in a human being is the right arm, not the left. Then on the right side, the strongest part of you would be your, not strongest, the most uniquely functional part would be your thumb. You remember opposable thumbs, Falker? (laughs) That's what separates us from the, the animal world, they say, is the ability to use our opposable thumb to make tools for ourselves. It makes a human being distinct, your thumb. You try to walk without your big toe, you find your, they call it the great toe. You remember I asked Chris that? I've been thinking about this a while. Your great toe in physical therapy is what they call it. 
It's because you don't walk right without it. It's very hard. It performs a function in ballast. God wanted your hearing to be anointed by Him, to be atoned for by blood, to bear the mark of ordination. He wanted your right hand, the hand of your strength, to be enabled with a mark of ordination and guilt atoned for. He wanted your right foot, the foot that would lead you into His will, to be marked that its guilt had been atoned for, that its footsteps were anointed by God. And there is a counterfeit king in this world. And he's looking for those of us that are in the promised land but have not yet completed its conquest. And he wants to cut off the symbol of your atoned for guilt. He wants to cut off the symbol of your ordination. He wants you to forget there was a milestone placed out there. He wants you to forget that there was a covenant. He wants you, because you are at the end of the procession, before all the kings of this world being trampled on, He wants you to forget your high calling in Christ and what you're destined for. He wants to cut them off and remove them. And every time He gets one more king under His table, He thinks that He's winning. And it's discouraging for the saints. Well, how did they beat Adonai Bezek? They beat him by sending the praise first. The ability to hear from God second. Those two fighting in tandem. Not much different than God ordains ministry. Praise and worship leaders and those who hear from God and proclaim His word. We can win. We can beat Adonai Bezek. Why 70? Why would he do this with 70? Seven is God's number of perfection. Ten is the number of human government. And it, it works the same way with 72, by the way, with 6 and 12. It's a little different, but it does work the same way. It's man working in God's government. Whether it's God working in man's government or man working in God's government, and I know I'm losing people on the CD, but that's 6 and 12 or 7 and 10, and we'll study numerology some other time, doesn't matter. The enemy's desire, the counterfeit king's desire, is to place man working in God's government or God working in man's government as impotent and under the table, feeding on scraps. I met a preacher when I was in the car business who was hanging out with a drug dealer, and I couldn't figure out why. And when I talked to him, he talked to me like the drug dealer. And then when the drug dealer left, he spoke to me as a Christian. And I could tell he was half a bubble off. I could tell that the elevator didn't go to the top floor anymore, and I didn't know why. And then it occurred to me. I listened to what he had to say. He started off witnessing to this man. He started off wanting to be a godly influence in his life. But before long, what had atoned for his guilt had been removed from his foot, his hand, and his ear. Before long, the man who had depended upon Yahweh as his source was now feeding on scraps from Adonai Bezek's table. He had become the lap boy for the drug dealer. He had learned, instead of depending on God for his finances, that the drug dealer would pay him. Why would the drug dealer do it? It made the drug dealer feel better about himself. The same reason a mobster might have a chapel in his house. Might give a lot of money to the church. The same reason very wealthy men in the world give money to charity. It's not because they care. It's because they want to feel better about themselves. Christians need to not eat scraps from the table because the cost is the loss of your big toe, the loss of your thumb, and the loss of your ear. The things which God marked you with to proclaim that you would be a king of the universe, the world wants to cut off. And there is a king who bears a name like God's but is not God's, who lives in a city that is like God's but not God's, who wants to harm you and you have to defeat him. And the way that you defeat him is with praise and hearing from God. Psalm 108 speaks about this. Matthew found this for me this morning. Only fun, only thing more fun than studying is studying with my brothers. Psalms 108. And we're going to wrap this up. Are you all getting this? Listen to Psalm 108. It's kind of divided into three parts. Can you see that in your Bible? There's a paragraph, then a paragraph in the middle, and then a third paragraph. My heart is steadfast, O God. This is page 678. I will sing and make music with all my soul. What would you say that is? Would you say that's Judah? That's praise? Awake, harp, 
and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. If you want to win when you fight Adonai Bezak, then even amongst these other nations, these other kings who are kings now, but will not be kings later, amongst them, praise God. Praise Him among the nations. Exalt His throne in your heart. I leaned over to my son and worship. I said, don't ever forget, son. Don't ever forget that when we sing in here, the Bible says that the Lord inhabits, the Lord lives in these praises. Don't forget that. When we praise Him, then the Lord is with us. Think about this. How many times in your life have you heard from God? You know, that's not just an overwhelming number of times. It's not beyond the ability to count. Now think about the times you heard from God. How many of them were in a worship service? That's because He's present. He inhabits. He's enthroned upon the praises of His people. If you want God with you in battle, you need to be praising Him. Now the truth is, He said He would be with us always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't leave us. But it makes you more aware of His presence to think about Him. Well, why is that important? Because if the right hand in battle is to praise Him, the left hand in battle is to be able to hear Him. And although He's always with you, if your mind is not thinking about Him, if you are not praising Him, it is hard for you to hear from Him. And both are necessary to win. Whether you go to battle because you heard from God and then praise sustains you, or praise brought you into the battle and hearing from God sustains you, they work together. Now, you say, well, I, I know this. Well, then do it. We need to learn to do it. It's not enough to be entertained by somebody giving you shadows and types. It's not enough to be entertained by some new thought. We have to learn to practice out there or perform out there what we've practiced in here. When you get the bad report and you're in the middle of a battle and you feel as if your authority as a Christian is being challenged, begin to praise God. Keep your ears open to hear from Him and advance against the enemy. You can look right at the devil and you can tell him, you may have cut off my brother's big thumb and big toe, but you won't get mine. And more than that, I'm going to go around and pray for healing for all of those kings left under your table. I'll be one who rescues those who are hurt. How many Christians have you ever met that were hurt in a church? We spent the better part of our ministry years talking about how it's the Christian's responsibility not to get hurt. And ministries ought not focus on those that are hurt. That's all good and well, but the fact is they are out there and they are hurt. So what are we going to do about it? We just laugh at them? We just pass by like the Levite passing on the other side of the road from the Samaritan? Are we going to help? See, that guy was on the right road going the wrong direction. He was on the right road but had been run over by life. He was called to be a king and had been left beaten there. His brothers didn't help him. Nobody helped him. Nobody equipped by God helped him until God's man came along and helped him. Psalm 108 teaches us to praise. Verse 6, Save us, help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from His sanctuary. I will triumph. I will parcel out Shechem. You know what parcel out means? The, the parcel service, postal system. What does it mean to parcel? Parcel means to divide up something. Where, where did this first... Uh, anyway, he heard from God. He praised. Then he heard from God. And he said, hey, I cut up my enemy. <laughs> I'll hand him out like I will the mail. And measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, praise, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Now, I have a feeling if you did a Greek or Hebrew, in this case, Hebrew study, you might find out there are a lot of words for wash basin. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. The first part of the battle is to praise. The second part of the battle is to hear from God. And they work together. Now the third part of Psalm 108. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God? You have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy. 
For the help of man is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory. He will trample down our enemies. The first part here is to praise God. The second part of Psalm 108 is to hear from God. The third part is to acknowledge that what you couldn't do by yourself, He will do with you. Victory. You want to beat Adonai Bezek? You beat him by praising God, by hearing God's voice, by refusing to feed at his table. Those 70 kings have fallen. And it looks like God's economy is failing on earth. You don't give in. How many men have stood in a generation where it looked like the church was gone, utterly failed? How about if you had stood and watched the church in the day that Hitler began to kill the Jews? Can't we look now and say, where were they? Weren't they asleep? If you had been there a hundred years before the Reformation, would you have looked around and said, where is God's church? Where is God's working in the affairs of men? All I see is Adonai Bezek with the, the people of God, thumbs cut off, toes cut off. They're eating under His table. And yet, the Reformation occurred. And yet, the church is alive. And yet, God has always been working in His people. It takes some who refuse to submit to the enemy, that regard the pleasures of this world like Moses did the pleasures of Egypt. Not worth comparing to being a king with God. You need to look at all the world has to offer. If you have the chance to be Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake tomorrow as a scrap, just a scrap from Adonai Bezek's table, and not worth comparing with the kingship that you'll receive. This is how Jesus stood before the devil on the Mount of Temptation. And the devil said, Hey, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all this. This is how Jesus hit him with the Word. He knew that what the devil could give him today was not worth comparing with what he would inherit tomorrow. This is how he stands confidently before Pilate and says, Hey, are you a king? Yeah, I'm a king, but my people don't fight like yours. Because he knew that the scraps he was giving up today would be kingship for him tomorrow. It's how he tells the thief on the cross, tomorrow you will be with me in paradise. What the world has to offer you today is a scrap, and it comes to you at the cost of everything that God has given you to make you unique. We heard Elvis singing this morning while we were in the coffee shop. Not in person, obviously. And I began to think this man had glory. He had everything that a man could want so that they call him the king. And it's just a scrap at Adonai Bezek's table. He gave up his kingship with Christ for a scrap. I don't want to be that way. I know that it doesn't look like we're kings today. But I won't take the world's scraps because I believe that I will be a king in the kingdom that is coming this way. And the Bible says that it's true now. In Chronicles 20, we're not going to go there because I'm going to close. You see, you see the people of God going out. Jehoshaphat's leading them. And because he sends Judah first, because he appoints singers, praise and worship leaders there, God ambushes the enemy for him. He throws them into such confusion that they begin to kill themselves. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. And we'll quit with uh, two scriptures. I'm glad we ended up recording this, even though the first part got cut off. Yeah. When I start to look around and I start to count the people that we mail CDs to and the, the feedback that we get, you know, God is feeding people in our church outside of these walls. We're getting an opportunity to bless people without getting any credit for it, without getting any glory for it. Doesn't that sound like God? We can look out here and see what is absolutely humble and small. You know, we don't fill up the few chairs that we do have. And you could be discouraged. And you could lean on the arm of man and go feed on scraps from Adonai Bezek's table. But what we don't see here in front of our eyes is work that is going on that is unseen and that is it's touching people's lives all around us. Whether you get the reports or not, it is. You know, I, I just got a report uh, day before yesterday. But the CD was listened to a long time before that. And it was a blessing to somebody. Most of the battle in the kingdom comes with what you can't see as progress. What you can't label as success. 
but trusting God that it is because you're doing it with a praise in your heart and you're doing it because you heard Him. Working for the satisfaction of your king and not the approval of others is success in every regard in the kingdom. First Timothy. All the T's are together and I still can't find it. First Timothy 6. Start in verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. God, the blessed, only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. He is called the King of kings. When we recognize His authority, we enter His kingdom and he calls us kings he is the king among kings Paul encouraged Timothy to fight for the faith the way Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate recognize you're a king refuse to eat the scraps from the enemy's table hang on to that which makes you unique if God's given you the gifting to sing like Elvis then do it for the kingdom don't sell out we won't read it, but Philippians 2.15 tells us that we are held out there in this universe, in this crooked and perverse generation, to shine like stars in the universe. It's true. It's true that at times we feel like fools at the end of a procession. It's true that at times you don't see anything happening around you, but you have to be comforted. Maybe all you see are the 70 kings under Adonai Bezek's table. But what you have to be comforted by is the knowledge that if you hang on to your thumbs, your toes, your ability to hear from God, if you walk with praise in your heart, having heard from God, you will be declared a king. And the others will serve our kingdom. That's what the Bible's about. We are the princes of the universe. Freddie Mercury got it wrong. It was not the gay activists. Although they seem to be, the powers of this world seem to be princes now, it's us. Our kingdom is just not like Pilate's kingdom. We don't fight in the way that he does. We do stand against the powers of darkness, but we don't draw up arms. We fall to our knees. We pray. We advance the kingdom through forceful love. Y'all, let's stand up. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us a song. Have you ever woken up and you don't know why a song's in your heart, but it is? I've had blessed be the name of the Lord in my heart for about three days. And you know what? Every time I've been tempted to see something that I shouldn't. Every time I've been tempted to say something that I shouldn't. Blessed be the name of the Lord is rolling through my head and it is strength to me. If you add to that the ability to hear from God where He says, Eric, do this. Eric, don't do that. Then you find yourself walking in His will. God's kingdom is not difficult. It's not difficult to know what to do. It's difficult to do what He tells you to. Stand up. Let's pray.